You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, if we could sit across from each other, just eyeball to eyeball, maybe at a coffee shop with a table in between us and, you know, that, that nice warm coffee beverage in front of both of us. Here's what I'd love to ask you. I really would. I'd love to ask you, what do you think it takes to survive as a Christian and maybe even thrive as a Christian in our world the way our world is? It's divisive and polarizing and merciless and hate-filled, as things often appear to be, what does it take to thrive as a Christian? I'd really love to hear your thoughts on that. I think, if you want my opinion, I think mercy, I think mercy, I think mercy is something we don't just have to tolerate or have an affection for or like. I think, as Christians, we have to love mercy. I think it's hard. Quick little show of hands, or for those of you online, anybody ever had anything wrong done to you? (laughs) Judging by your laughter, I'm going to round that up to 100%. There you go. What is mercy, and why is it so important, and why are we supposed to get it? How do you get there? That's where we're going to go this morning. So we started this study of David's life called Broken and Beloved at the beginning David was anointed when he is a squeaky-voiced 10-year-old. Not king yet, just one-day king. And then he's 15, a high school sophomore, when he squares off with Goliath. And then in his mid-20s, David spends his time in Saul's court fighting and winning dozens of battles. Everybody loves David. He's kind of the hometown hero. He's got the sensitivity of a songwriter and the strength of a war hero. He's good-looking, well-educated, bright future, but here's what's up. At this point in David's life, there's this song that's kind of raising up in Israel, and here's how it goes. This is found in 1 Samuel 18. Just listen to the story here. 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. Here's what it says. As they were coming home, this is a war party, When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy with musical instruments. And now here's what they're singing. The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. David his tens of thousands. Now if you're Saul and you're fresh home from the battlefield, and your Super Bowl victory party starts with everybody talking about how great the backup quarterback is. So what did Saul think of this charming little chorus? Here's what this says. Verse 8, And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. Yeah, no kidding, right? And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've only ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. 
So at this point in this David story, Saul has decided he has had enough. Goliath or no, David's got to go. So Saul tries to kill him. And David, not knowing what else to do, he runs. So where we're going to be this morning, David's been running for three years. He's probably about 30. He's famous, but he's not safe. He's capable, but he's not secure. He's got a future, but he can't even sleep long enough to dream about it. And all of that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, so again, he's out fighting again, and was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. We'll talk about that in a minute. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. Everybody knows where that is? No? Good. All right. Yes, that is an actual place name. And so here's what's going on. First the place and then the people, and we're going to see how mercy shows up here and why mercy is so hard. So first, the text says that David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. En Gedi is Israel's version of the Badlands. Looks like this. About 200 yards from the western edge of the Dead Sea, limestone cliffs rise about 200 feet to a plateau. And years of erosion has carved canyons that wind through the plateau like wrinkling knuckles. If you ever wanted to run for your life, this is probably a good place to do it. I think it's important to remember that David did not choose the wilderness. David was chased there. He's running for his life with a myopic madman at his heels. And that had to bring a sense of disorientation to him. In his book, Leap Over a Wall, Eugene Peterson thoughtfully describes the effect of the wilderness like this. It says, the wilderness is a terrible, frightening place to be. It's also a place of beauty. There are things to be seen, heard, and experienced in this wilderness that can be seen, heard, and experienced nowhere else. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, we do well to be frightened, but we also do well to be alert, open-eyed, In the wilderness, we're plunged into an awareness of danger and death. At the very same time, we're plunged, if we let ourselves be, into an awareness of the great mystery of God and extraordinary preciousness of life. I wonder if you know the unwelcome disorientation that comes with a period in the wilderness. where nothing is familiar, where your fear becomes fuel, where you can barely hold it together. I wonder if you know the distortion, desperation, and disorientation of a season spent in the wilderness. I wonder if you might be in the wilderness right now. What we learn in the wilderness while usually unchosen, is a necessary step often in the spiritual journey. It's easy to imagine, isn't it, that shuffling in and out of canyon walls, that the 30-year-old David feels the weight of the wilderness on his shoulders. We don't like the wilderness, but we need it. 
Between the crags of the rocks and the sinuous, twisting canyons, David found something that he could not find in the comfort of the pastoral pasture. This inhospitable place oddly, unexpectedly becomes a sanctuary for David. So that's the place. But now the people. The text says that Saul chose 3,000 chosen men. The Hebrew word for chosen men here could be roughly translated as select warriors. Think about this as 3,000 army rangers, navy seals, and the country's best SWAT team all rolled into one. Chasing David down. Bad dudes. Probably an indication of how Saul's jealousy at this point has snowballed into full-on paranoia because we're told that David's men, by contrast, are about 600. So that's one-fifth the size of Saul's army. Not only that, but the text describes them oddly. If you go back a couple chapters, it says that, every, who are these guys that are following David? Are these like the cream of the crop? No. It says, everyone who was in distress, in debt, and bitter in soul. <laughs> That's great. No mindfulness, no money, no motivation. Recipe for success, right, David? <laughs> so Saul marches his army into the Badlands. The text says, to the wild goats, rocks, which... We're meant to see as an indication to how inhospitable this terrain is. Where do wild goats live? Do they live in green pastures and still waters? No. Shade trees and soft meadows? No. So that's the setting. Now let's step into the action. Verse 3 is what it says. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, Saul went in to relieve himself. And no need to spiritualize this. It means what it means. The king, Saul, had to go sit on the throne. <clears throat> and so here's what David did. There you go. David and his men were sitting in the back recesses of the cave. Da, da, da. This is what scholars call the rising action. It's where the tension starts to build a little bit, usually between two opposing characters, and we get a sense of what's going to happen. But here's where things get interesting. Another conflict moves in from the periphery. Because here's what we're expecting. We're expecting the conflict to be, to be between David and Saul. Right? And it is. But something else happens. Something unexpected. Take a look in verse 4 again. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And here's where the real tension moves to center stage in the spotlight. David could end Saul. Will he be merciful? What will he do? If he's merciful, why? The stage couldn't be set any better. They're in the middle of nowhere. This is man to man. There's no casualties, right? Like no collateral damage. No one could know about this. Two minutes, this whole thing could be over. Three years of paranoia, fixed. Funny, situations like this reveal our true character, don't they? So with Saul at the mouth of the cave, suspecting nothing, and three or 600 men over David's shoulder watching, what does David do? Verse 4 and David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
which interestingly in that culture is a symbol of his right to rule. Continues. But afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut the corner of Saul's robe. That phrase, his heart struck him, is only used twice in the Old Testament. Both times it's used in the David narrative, one we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, the second time. And it always means conviction of sin. Something jacked with his conscience. And he said to his men, so he turned around and addressed 600 guys waiting, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. He means Saul there. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up (laughs) and left the cave and went on his way. And that's the action. That's the story. But then, as if sensing our need to ask, well, why in the world is that right, David? Why'd you act that way? The text gives us two speeches. First by David, the second one by Saul. Speech number one, verse eight. Afterward, David arose, went out to the mouth of the cave. That's stupid. (laughs) You just got away, dude. And he called after Saul. And he says, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, that you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Who do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. What's David saying in all this? What's what's underneath this? What's driving this? Here's what David knows. Authority is not mine to take. Authority is God's to give. This is David going, look, Saul, this whole king thing, this is God's project, not mine. I'm not here to take something that I don't own. I'm not here to assert myself where I don't belong. I'm not here to fix a problem I didn't cause. I'm just here to make sure we see this the right way. God will judge, and I'm just David. And I need you to know, Saul, my father, my king, God's anointed, that I'm going to be merciful even when everybody is telling me to do otherwise. And so what is Saul's response? Now get this, verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. 
And he said to David, you're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good where I repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you didn't kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you'll surely be the king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Saul falls on his face, more likely out of shame and self-preservation than actual repentance at this point. He confesses that David has done right and that he has done wrong, and then he seemingly accepts whatever's coming his way, at least for now. Now what are we supposed to make of this? Here's the point and what we're going to spend the next 20 minutes or so talking through. Mercy does what revenge never can. Mercy does what revenge never can. I asked you a little while ago, how many of you have ever had wrong done to you? We all raised our hand. Those of you online, yeah. What we want in that moment is we go, oh, really? Revenge is easy. Mercy is hard. Mercy does what revenge never can. Well, what is mercy, though? Is mercy just like soft-hearted niceness, like spinelessness? Is this just like just Christian smiley stuff? Just the choice to like stuff your emotions rather than being open and honest, like just wanting to move on, forgive and forget. I don't think so. I think mercy is a whole lot more than just doing nothing. I think mercy is powerful. I think mercy is hard. I think mercy is courageous. I think mercy transforms the poison of pain into nourishment for the soul. I think mercy unlocks the prison of hatred in your own heart and invites freedom to flourish. I think mercy can change the world. Here's what I mean. Quick little story for you. On September 6th of 2018, a young woman named Amber Geiger left work at 9.30 p.m. after a 13 and a half hour shift. She drove to her apartment on the south side of Dallas where she had lived for about two months. Her apartment was on the third floor. Distracted by a phone call from a friend on her way home, she mistakenly approached a nearly identical apartment to hers on the fourth floor. Finding the door ajar, she entered with suspicion. She saw Botham Jean, an accountant, sitting on his couch watching TV and eating a bowl of ice cream. Believing it was her apartment and that Botham was an intruder, she pulled the gun and shot him in the chest. John was taken to a nearby hospital where he died from his wounds and Geiger was arrested. About a year later, October 1st of 2019, Geiger stood trial in Dallas charged with murder. At her sentencing, Botham's younger and only brother, Brant, who was 18 at the time, spoke to the court. Imagine sitting across from your only brother's killer. 
In that empty space, what would you say? Given that platform, how would you respond? What would your tone be? Brant didn't speak to the judge. He didn't speak to the jury. He didn't even speak to the crowd. Instead, Brent Brant spent his entire time speaking directly to Geiger. He spoke for himself and he spoke from his heart. ABC News captured the moment in this two-minute clip. And I want you to watch it. Turn your attention to the screens. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's, what, that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. say it again because I absolutely believe it, that mercy does what revenge never can. So how do you get there? I've <laughs> seen that clip dozens of times, can't make it through it. How do you get there? I want to talk about that in a minute, but before we do, why don't we do it? <laughs> Let's talk about what gets in our way. Why aren't our lives marked by amazing mercy? I think most of us fall captive to one of three enemies of mercy. And here they are. The first enemy of mercy, I think, is the crowd. The crowd. Crowds are funny things, aren't they? 
Let's move from the courtroom back to the cave. David's got a few hundred men chirping over his shoulder. Founders of the David fan club, right? And these guys are going, now's your chance, man. This is it. And you caught it. They even theologize it. They said, God is at work. This is God's plan. God has let this happen for you. It's all led to this. Isn't it scary how spiritual that sounds? I think there's a lesson in there. Just because a lot of people who happen to agree with you are saying something that's really spiritual doesn't mean they're not really wrong. A great crowd can still be greatly wrong. You ever noticed how crowds tend to galvanize around who you're supposed to hate? <laughs> Nothing unifies like a common enemy, right? Sounds like our world. goes like this. You're a Christian, and so you're not supposed to like these people. You're a Christian, and these are the bad guys. You can't be kind to them. You're a Christian, and these are the expected cultural lines. You can't think this way, vote this way, act this way, Right? And I say, baloney, who says I can't? <laughs> when did we become so cowardly in our execution of mercy? David's pushing back against the people who are supposed to be for him. That's what's remarkable about this whole thing. I believe that faithfully following Jesus in 2022 America means pushing back, resisting, and if needs be, outright rejecting the easy, thin, pointless, and purposeless battle lines that the crowd, which includes a lot of Christians, by the way, want to impose. I believe faithfully following Jesus means getting above the noise and living with a simple gospel ethic that's just jaw-droppingly merciful. Here's what these guys are expecting David to do, and David does the exact opposite. I think that David, in that moment, taught the crowd more about God by what he didn't do. I guess what I'm saying is that when, I, when it comes to mercy, I just don't want to be predictable. You with me? Here's just a little tidbit. Don't ever let anybody else tell you who to hate. I think it's just a good way of looking at life. Don't ever let anybody tell you who you're supposed to hate. So that's the first enemy of mercy is the crowd. Second enemy of mercy is my own appetite for revenge. Chuck Swindoll, who in my mind is one of the greatest preachers in recent history, when um, preaching on this text, he made this insightful comment. He said that the desire for revenge is the most subtle temptation in all of life. I think he's right. It's so subtle, isn't it? Revenge simmers on heat for so long, at so low heat, that we almost forget it's there. And then it sneaks up behind us without warning and surprises us when we realize one day how bitter we actually have become. Here's the insight. The longer you harbor resentment, the easier it becomes to justify hate. And for David... Resentment was simmering for three years, right? If I'm David here, I'm looking out of the mouth of the cave and I'm going, Saul, man, that dude, he has wasted three years of my life and those are years I'm not getting back. He cost me time. He cost me sanity. I've got gray hair now. <laughs> he cost me my family and now it's on. Just listen to this gospel corrective. You don't have to turn there, but this is from Romans chapter 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Can you imagine what a merciless world would do with Christians who did that? Food, when they are hungry. What if we asked, what would nourish my enemies? How can I nourish them? Water, when they're thirsty. What if we asked, what would refresh my enemies? Doesn't that sound blissfully backward? I love it. These are Christians who play with a different playbook, and they say, I am here to overcome evil with good. Do you hear how that kind of Christianity, though, takes faith? Because I can't control it. When I, when I, when I, when I release, oof. mercy does what revenge never can. If we're going to get there, we've got to get above our own appetite for revenge. Third enemy of mercy, and then we're going to talk about what to do about it. Third enemy of mercy is a hard heart toward God. And I'll just be honest with you, this for me is the tough one. My heart gets hard. Here's why. When I get wounded, me, I get callous and I close up. That's just me, and I wonder if you might be the same way. Maybe you too. I try to get like hard and cold and distant. Odd thing I notice about myself though, and if this is your particular thing, this might be true with you, when I try to get callous and close up, the only thing I lose is intimacy with God. Did you catch how David refers to Saul in this whole thing? Three times he calls him my Lord, which is a contextually cultural way of saying my master or the one whom I'm following. Two times he calls him the Lord's anointed. And then once he even says my father. This is how David chooses to see the man who wants to end him. And it makes me ask, like, David, how did you get there? That's a perspective I don't have. It's worth remembering that David has spent three years in the wilderness at this point, and it's in the wilderness God widens David's gaze. Again, Eugene Peterson helps make the helpful observation here. He says, David's wilderness-trained eyes looked on Saul And saw, not Saul the enemy, but Saul the God anointed. In the solitude and silence and emptiness of the wilderness, uncluttered and undistracted by what everyone else is saying or doing, David was able to see God's glory where no one else could see it. In Saul. All throughout this scene, David's words reflect that his heart was soft, not toward Saul, but toward God. Here's something we should think on. The best antidote for pain when somebody hurts you is not vilifying the opposition. Turning people into villains just makes the walls thicker, the walls higher, and the distance greater. The best antidote for pain when you're hurt is cultivating closeness with God. We need God's help to see others not as problems to solve, but as people to love. So if those are the three things that prevent mercy, three enemies of mercy in our own life, how do we get past them? How do we show a merciless but for now still watching world who our God is? 
Um, there's an author who I'm just learning to love. His name's Walter Wandrin. And he writes a lot about forgiveness. And he writes a lot about mercy. And he does it in a way that makes me mad because I know he's right and it's frustrating. It's a sign of a good book. <laughs> he takes a look at the word forgiveness. And he notes that right in the middle of the word forgiveness is the word give. And so he says, when we move toward forgiveness and live in mercy, we give three things. And so I'm just going to borrow from him, and I'm going to talk about him a little bit further. First thing that we give in giving forgiveness, forgiveness means giving up. When you've been wronged, it's like you have your hand around somebody's throat, and you're ready to squeeze. They've caused you a lot of pain, and you're going to get even, right? But the first step to forgiveness is giving up, but not giving up like quitting, it's giving up the right for revenge. Another word for this is mercy. I have the right to, but I'm not going to. In choosing mercy, I give up control. When David said in here, may the Lord judge between you and me, that's not some spiritual platitude. That's not just holy rhetoric. That's not lip service. That's not just like the Christian nice thing to do or like the easy way out. That's David dropping some really heavy theology in Saul's ear and showing mercy to Saul, going against what we'd expect him to do, what the crowd expected him to do, and maybe even in his own flesh what David wanted to do. David releases control of a painful situation and he returns it to God. That's what mercy means. Release and return. Say that with me. Release and return. And it takes faith. It takes faith because revenge is easy. I know how revenge works, and so do you, right? I know how to get what I want back. I know. I know how this works. We can see revenge. It doesn't require me to take any faith at all. You shoot at me, okay, wham, I'm going to take one at you. I know how that works. Mercy is a declaration that although I can, it is better for me and it's better for you that I not. And so that's the first thing that we give. Forgiveness means giving up. Second gift of forgiveness, it means giving notice. And this one's so important because I can already hear the pushback in some of your heads because you're going, what am I supposed to do? Just like lay down and let the world roll over me like a doormat? Because that's not right either. I've got my self-esteem. I've got some stuff. I'm not supposed to just like take it from the world, really. No, I'm happy to tell you that gospel forgiveness is not denial. <laughs> gospel forgiveness is acknowledgement. It means that, yes, I give notice, that, yes, I am hurt, and no, it's not okay. But here's where we get stuck. Here's where I get stuck. When I'm wounded, it's very easy to let my emotions drive. Fear, anger, frustration, sadness, pain. It's easy to let those get in the driver's seat and dictate how I respond. But let's remember, our lives are not driven by what our emotions say. Our lives are driven by what God's word says. David isn't being merciful to Saul because he liked him. David isn't being merciful to Saul because it was easy. David didn't like slap on a Christian smile and go, you know what, Saul, it's okay. We bros, you okay? He didn't do that. He gave notice. He's being honest. And I think we need to recover that. Speaking the truth in love. 
That's what giving notice means. What keeps us from picking up the sledgehammer? What allows us to give notice while also being emotionally honest? It isn't what I feel about that person. It's what I know about God. Third gift of mercy and forgiveness. The third thing we give is we give gifts. When somebody wrongs you, as is the case with Saul and David, I think it's worth considering you have a measure of power in that moment, don't you? When somebody wrongs you. You have something on that other person. You get to decide what to do with that power. And so with knife in hand, we approach the mouth of the cave with a choice. Will I use my power for good? As theologian Sam Wells puts it like this, you can use your power to release and to heal or to imprison and destroy. Mercy is about using power to heal. This is what redemption looks like, the triumph of mercy in the context of judgment. The word for this is grace. I'm giving you the gift of not bringing this up to you again. I'm giving you the gift of not speaking about this to anyone else again. I'm giving you the gift of not speaking it to myself again. I'm not going to replay the tapes in my mind. I'm not going to rehash the hurt. This will leave a scar, but I'm going to give you the gift of not reopening. Now, where do we see this in this text? Because this has to be biblical. Otherwise, it's just nice. (laughs) This one's easy to miss. Go back to verse 21. This is the most unexpected curveball in this whole scene. At the end of Saul's speech, verse 21, here's what he says. He says, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my, and keep me out of my father's house. What's he asking? This is Saul begging David to give him the gift of a secure future, something he absolutely does not deserve. Because again, honestly, if I'm in that spot, I'm going, not on your life, dude. You're a psycho. (laughs) You've been chasing me across the desert for three years, and now you want me to give your kids jobs and write a good biography of you when you're gone? Are you nuts? (laughs) How could you even ask that? Are you crazy? What are you thinking? What's wrong with you? What's David's response? Verse 22, and David swore this to Saul. Now, what is that? How do you find space in your soul for that? Doesn't Saul need to be reprimanded? Shouldn't he squirm a little bit? Does David's response remind you of anybody else's response when they were wronged? Centuries later, with a crowd gathered on the Judean hillside, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, let's not forget David's heir, the king who would follow the king. David says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You are nuts, Jesus. Oh no, it gets better. He says, when someone slaps you on the face, give them a shot at the other one also. When someone forces you to drive them one mile and doesn't reimburse you for that $3.69 gas, go another one. Someone takes the shirt off your back, offer them that brand new North Face jacket too, just in case they need it. 
Either those are the suggestions of a raving lunatic or they are the ethic of someone who is outside of this world and worth giving your life to. Giving grace seems crazy. It makes no sense. Grace is backwards. It's why the song is called Amazing Grace, not Predictable Grace. Not, yeah, I saw that coming, Grace. Or, yeah, it makes total sense to me, Grace. (laughs) It's amazing because it's unexpected. Mercy does what revenge never can. In a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. When we celebrate this memorial meal, there's a declaration that Jesus changed the world. Everything is now inverted. Things are different. One of my favorite hymns is an old hymn. It's called Here is Love, and um, it came out of the Welsh revival. There's the second stanza of this song. It goes like this, and I want to give this to you as a way of thinking about the Lord's Supper as a transition from David in a cave to Jesus on a cross. It goes like this. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.